but Patricia Hill Collins talks about this and Kathy Weeks and Sophie Lewis, is the family becomes this metaphorical language through which we understand society, nations, races, workplaces, political organizations, sort of employers say we're one big family. You know, this sort of proliferating of the ide ideology of the family throughout society. That's one aspect of a broader phenomenon, which is people mean a lot of different things by family. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with M.E. O'Brien about family abolition and insurgent social reproduction. If you'd like to support Red Medicine, you can do so by signing up for a £1 a month donation using the link in the show notes. You can rate the show five stars on Apple or Spotify. And more importantly, you can share this or other episodes with people you think might enjoy it. Returning to the podcast today, we have M.E. O'Brien, who writes on gender and communist theory. She co-edits two magazines, Pinko and Parapraxis, and received her PhD from NYU. She's the co-author of the novel Everything for Everyone, an Oral History of the New York Commune 2052-2072. to And today we're going to be talking about her work on family abolition, specifically her new book, Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care. We cover a lot of ground in this relatively short discussion, including how the crisis of capitalist overproduction changed the nature of the family in the second half of the 20th century, how we might understand what's happening in moments of insurgent social reproduction and what that framework refers to, and some of the debates that have unfolded in response to discussions around the role of the family in capitalist society. If you are skeptical or critical of family abolition as a discourse, Emmy's new book should be essential reading, and I hope this conversation is helpful in learning a little bit more about what that term does and doesn't refer to. I also want to note that Sophie Lewis has appeared on a previous episode of Red Medicine, and so if you enjoy this discussion, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that one as well. We began the conversation by discussing some of the reactions to the re-emergence of family abolition as a discourse among the left in recent years. One of the things that stuck with me from our last conversation, I remember you making a comment that despite what people may think, you're actually not very controversial. I thought maybe we could start, I'm sure it's a question you've asked quite a lot of times, answered quite a few times on your tour, but um, I thought maybe I could ask you a little bit about what it is about family abolition as a politics, as a discourse, that kind of provokes such a strong response from people. Because <laughs> it's something you treat very... Uh, comprehensively and nuancedly in the sort of opening sections of the book as well. Yeah, no, I have a lot of sympathy for how much anxiety the idea of family abolition provokes in people. Certainly some of those people are, you know, fascists or my political enemies who see the a particularly narrow idea of family as being the kind of necessary basis for social order. And, you know, those people 
tend to also overlap with those who want to eradicate trans people from public life. But there are many people on the left who have very positive ideas of family uh, family as a sort of necessary refuge from the violence of white supremacy or capitalist labor markets. And then it, it makes a lot of sense that the family uh, has very deep and profound meanings for people like the family is who takes care of us when we're our most vulnerable, right? As infants, when we're sick or old, uh, when we're unable to work, right? We rely on family uh, overwhelmingly in our society. Like that's one of the main supports available to people. And for those for whom it's not available, things can get really ugly and really hard, you know, of loneliness and isolation and despair and, uh, and it being very difficult to make it through difficult times. And so the family has all these really loaded meanings for people you know i'm speaking with the positive ones there are also lots of negative ones and uh it's very easy for people to imagine that family abolition is a politics of trying to take your family away from you trying to rob you of your only solace and support and that that is rightfully terrifying and when people don't have access to families of one sort or another, uh, things can get quite dire and very scary. Uh, it's very easy to become isolated in our society and atomized. And so people imagine, sometimes imagine family abolition is trying to, is a politics of trying to take away this refuge and support. And that is rightfully terrifying and people are very skeptical of it. Um yeah, and I have sympathy for some of those skepticisms. Mm. And I'm curious as to how it felt putting together this body of work um, after Sophie Lewis released their book on the same topic and how it felt to, in real time, maybe see some of the responses to that book and be able to kind of sit with them and formulate kind of responses and, and be in dialogue with Sophie as well, I assume. Yeah, Sophie and I are definitely close comrades and friends. We just did a launch in Philadelphia together that was about both our books. And we will be together along with my previous co-author, Aman Abdahadi, at Socialism in Chicago in September. And Sophie has been a tremendous support in enabling this book to happen. I see the books as really quite complimentary. Sophie's book is extremely short. Uh, it's a very, very quick read, and it covers similar ground as my book, but with uh, brevity and clarity and inspirational sort of motivational elements that I think are quite rich as an introduction for people. Uh, and I unfortunately, you know, we were writing our books fairly co concurrently, and I was not able to do a lot of edits based on the feedback Sophie's book received. Um, uh, it, it, I think Sophie has uh been targeted by right-wing harassment uh they've been uh certainly have earned a lot of hate in the kind of conservative leaning social democratic circles as well as right-wing circles and i that's that's worrisome to me you know like i i care about sophie's well-being and uh their safety and uh certainly am not interested in sort of being the target of harassment and violence anymore than i already have in my life um, yeah, sure. Yeah. 
I uh, would like to think, I mean, our books have slightly different emphases. I move into the future much more than uh, Sophie does. Sophie spends much more time exploring the kind of meanings of family and family and popular culture. Um, Sophie has done more research than me on the what I call in my book, the Red Decade, the period of the late 1960s and early 1970s, and some of the rebellions against the family. When I mentioned Shalom with Firestone, for example, I Side, Sophie Lewis. While my work uh, has, uh, you know, more space available for a kind of historical depth and uh, a a particular kind of analysis that I develop and build throughout the book about how the family functions within racial capitalism and the necessity uh, in my my argument of its overcoming if we ever want to get out of class society. Mm. And I'd be interested to hear what you think about the reemergence of this discourse at the moment that it has. Uh, you described COVID-19 as one of many crises to face the family as an institution. And I think we'll talk a little bit more later about the family as a kind of uh, institution defined by a kind of constant crisis. But what is it about COVID-19 that you felt represented a crisis in the family and specifically the form of social reproduction that it provides? And do you think that's related in some way to the re-emergence and the, the interest in, in the work that you and many other people are doing on the subject of family abolition? Yeah, so I think there were our historical moment is characterized by a cascading series of escalating crises. The family has always, as you alluded to, been a container of crises and panic in many ways, been a focal point of uh, uh, fears about like what's happening to civilization or what's happening to society. But the last uh, since the 1970s or so, uh, the family has particularly undergone such huge transformations that I think are very easy for people to experience as a crisis that um, it is, and my book gets into this extensively, the historical circumstances have changed such that it's no longer available to nearly any working class people uh, to have a housewife at home, right? To organize a, a normative conventional family based on one wage earner. That was available to a segment of the white working class uh, beginning in the 1890s and sort of peaking in the post-World War II period, I think in both the United States and some social democracies in Europe. Um, and this this isn't available anymore, right? This sort of particular kind of fantasy of working class people being able to access something resembling a kind of normative bourgeois family ideal is uh, not there anymore at all. And meanwhile, and it's not there because wages don't sustain it, don't enable it. Um, and there's a lot to say about the dynamics of capitalist crisis that have led capitalists to really go on the offensive in trying to drive down working class wages overall and dismantle social democratic uh, safety nets. But then there's also an intensifying precarity, including for all those people who were never able to access a housewife-based family form. So I talk uh, a lot about uh, Black Americans in the United States uh, in the post-60s era. I talk about queers. I talk about um, single people and that there's, you know, the level of economic precarity, the difficulty accessing work, the difficulty forming stable lives has made it extremely difficult to 
sustain any kind of family structure, including non-normative or non-traditional or chosen family. But um, this, so this sort of shattering of a certain kind of normative ideal that really had a grip over our family, ideas of family, has gone along with an intensifying dependence on the private household as less and less resources are available outside the family, either in labor markets or in through state supports, that people really are much more likely to have to rely on somebody in their private household when they fall on hard times. It's really very difficult to get by without some sort of support in the private household. So we these factors together, along with queer struggles and feminist struggles, we've seen a kind of diversification in the ways that people form family towards, in some cases, less oppressive, less normative, um, less narrow forms of kin, but then also a kind of intensifying dependency on the private household that really restricts people's options. Um, so this is sort of overall the big picture of what the changes to family over the last 50 years. I opened talking about COVID in chapter one after the preface and uh, the it, talking about COVID was a moment where all the supports around families abruptly disappeared, right? Uh, in many places, you couldn't send your children out to school. There was no bars you could go hang out at. There was no, there was way less food that you could sort of pick up on the way home. I mean, all these sort of support services provided by the state and the market surrounding family life abruptly vanished. And uh, people's broader relationships outside of their immediate households became way less accessible, right? Like it varied how long this lasted, depending on the place, but people were encouraged to shelter at home, to live, stay with their pod, to stay with their private household. And what became immediately apparent is how completely impossible it is to survive solely on the unit of the family, how everyone was overwhelmed, everyone was scared, everyone was exhausted, it drove everybody crazy. And for some people, this meant a real escalation of uh, intimate partner violence, of domestic abuse, of child abuse. For some people, this meant having no place to go, being very lonely and very isolated and really in a lot of danger. And many people, many young people moved back in with their parents, adults, after having moved out. But even for people with great families, even with people for people who really enjoyed their families, it suddenly became untenable. The amount of work involved, the managing of interpersonal conflict, the managing of space, and it kind of shattered this idea that one adult or two adults is remotely adequate for raising children. And it kind of drew people's attention to the broader systems of care, services, state supports that enable households to function at all. And that enabled people to start talking a lot more than they had about less conventional ways of organizing their households. It uh, it led some people to start talking about the, what kind of state supports could really help sustain family life. And it led some people to really lose a certain kind of romantic ideal of the family. I don't know if this is what's driving family abolition. 
I trace back the kind of reemergence of family abolition and discourse to a 2015 essay by Gleason and Griffiths called Kinder Communismus. And it's a wonderful essay, sort of laying out the politics of the family and arguing for its overcoming in in a queer communist vein. And that helped sort of re-inject, re-establish family abolition as a discourse. And it's uh, helped proliferate since then. Of course, Lewis and I both wrote our books largely before COVID occurred. But uh, COVID has certainly helped open up the market and the interest and the curiosity and this sort of thing. In my, I don't get into it in this book, why I think family abolition discourse. So I spend a paragraph on it at one point, but I ended up writing an essay for Parapraxis issue one, where I make an argument about why family abolition is resonant at this moment that really traces, uh, tries to think about the psychic ramifications of the collapse of a male breadwinner family ideal. And on the one hand, the sort of effort at resurrecting a zombie primal father by fascists. And on the other hand, a proliferating set of critiques of the family ideal that has been in crisis long enough now, no one can pretend that it is readily available anymore. The sort of whatever psychic glue it had over the lives of some people is gone. And people, there's a room there to actually think about what we desire and rather kind of reestablishing atomized private households under patriarchal authority is actually reflects our deepest yearnings or not, or if perhaps we could do better. Mm. Gosh, there's a lot of things I want to come back to you on about what you've just said there. <laughs> I'll start with a kind of slightly flippant comment, which is, I couldn't help but think about The Simpsons a lot while I was reading your book, actually, because that seems like the most obvious example of a a dissonance between a kind of idealized male breadwinner sort of family model that is disseminated just like so far and wide. And yet you can really easily track sort of decade by decade how less and less that kind of reflects a kind of identifiable um, life really for for just like so many people so that's 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 one thing that comes to mind another thing is i wonder if it might be helpful just to briefly sort of differentiate between the family and the private household uh, and just for people that may not be totally sure about how those two ideas sort of interlock and overlap and as different in some ways like maybe just to kind of clarify what those two different terms actually refer to So in my first three chapters after the introduction, I provide three contrasting but overlapping definitions of family. In the first chapter, I define the family as a a private household, as a unit in economic reproduction, right? So as a group of people who share resources, who have uh, non-market relationships with each other, right? Direct personal relationships or relationships of direct personal domination in many cases, who redistribute access to income with among each other, right? So if a couple people are able to work, they spend that money on raising their children or taking care of their parents or helping each other out when they're unemployed. 
and this and the private household as the main place that children are raised, particularly young children, but a sort of central axis of socialization uh, around gender norms, heterosexuality, all sorts of things, and a really necessary component along with the state and the market in the reproduction of capitalist society. And so that that's the unit of family that sort of really came to the fore around COVID-19. Uh, it's the unit of the family, a way of thinking about the family that has dominated uh, the Marxist feminist a theoretical thing called social reproduction theory. And I think it's a unit of the family that my kind of commitment to overcoming it is extremely challenging to people, like actually envisioning a society where the private household is not a meaningful economic unit. It might be a residential unit, but it doesn't function as the main way of managing property and income. The second definition of family in the second chapter is thinking about the family as a racial ideal, as a normative ideal, and one that's sort of held in place on either side by the potential violence. On the one hand, uh, the risks of a state kind of imposing normative ideals, violently policing certain kinds of families. There's a wonderful movement these days that is really flourishing and calling for the abolition of the family policing system and recognizing how child protective services and its adjuncts does very little to actually protect children, in many cases puts children in harm's way, but is a massive violent state apparatus policing Black families in the United States, and I think arguably in other dynamics and many other places in the capitalist world, and that this uh, extremely violent system has the sort of pretense of protecting children, but you can actually trace its roots back to a long history of uh, separation of children and parents under slavery, under um, Indian boarding schools, uh, and the idea that the state, you know, that has done a tremendous amount of harm on, on many, many levels is uh, the sort of best mechanism for addressing what is often boils down to poverty, lack of mental health support, lack of resources available to parents, and that there are much, much better ways than a state coercion to deal with this. So there's that kind of violence. I talk a lot about white supremacist violence and white terror violence and it enforcing a particular kind of racial ideal of the family. And then also the violence within families, the violence that holds together these relationships of personal domination. And for the place we are most likely to be murdered, to be raped, to be hit, to be violently hurt, are within our families. And uh, this, that we currently have a system that enables uh, proliferation, uh, facilitates violence within the family with very little in the way of sane recourse to really deal with that. So, and then, and then I, you know, I get into in later chapters, the history of white supremacy around the construction of the normative family ideal, and particularly thinking about settler colonialism in Canada and the US and uh, slavery, thinking about the family politics of slavery in the United States and the Caribbean. I also have a chapter focused on industrialization in Europe and other things. Um, and then the third chapter uh, is about the family as a source of solace, the family as a refuge, or that when we are scared, when we are in danger, we turn to family for help. 
not everyone, of course, but it's that's a very common experience. And the family kind of represents in our mind this kind of the possibility of unconditional love and care. And here I look at uh, George Floyd calling out to his deceased mother as he was being killed by Derek Chauvin, the police officer in Minneapolis. And this sort of calling out to your mother, even if she's not alive, as a a, a call for being saved. And so that plays a very important role in my book in thinking about the kind of twin sides of abolition, that abolition is both destruction of something, also the unleashing of something, the sort of fulfillment of a truncated kernel, and in this case, the love and care that people sometimes are able to find their families, and really imagining a social system structured around that much more seriously, and then uh, the sort of building of new social institutions that reflect that commitment. And so all three definitions play an important role throughout the book. Of course, family is one of these nexus words. It's kind of a bundle of many, many different meanings. And something I don't get into the book very much, but Patricia Hill Collins talks about this and Kathy Weeks and Sophie Lewis, is the family becomes this metaphorical language through which we understand society, nations, races, uh, workplaces, political organizations, like we all the time, we refer to our comrades in certain like union settings as our brothers or sisters. We sort of employers say we're one big family. And this, it's sometimes been called family familialism, you know, this sort of proliferating of the ideology of the family throughout society. I don't get into that that much, but that's one aspect of a broader phenomenon, which is people mean a lot of different things by family. And I get some into histories of chosen family, particularly in queer communities and Black communities, thinking about sort of non-normative family arrangements insofar as they function as a private household, by and large, is how I examine them. But uh, it's, of course, people mean many, many things by family that go well beyond these three definitions that I chose to structure the book around. Mm. Yeah, I'm just thinking there as well, when you talk about the kind of slightly paradoxical nature of abolition, it's kind of echoed as well in the way in which many of the sort of policy reform uh, sort of recommendations or, or, or what might be kind of considered family abolitionist practices to many people may also occur to them as pro-family policies. Um, so I, I distinguish in the book between a family abolitionist practice, which mm-hmm. I primarily locate in the dynamics of mass insurrection, of yeah. thinking about moments of usually violent or prolonged uh, militant confrontation with the state and capital. And that is really where I locate the kernel family abolition primarily. Um, there are moments of people desiring more than the family, yearning for something other than the family, expressed in runaways and chosen family and a lot of different kinds of setups. There are also what I call progressive anti-family reforms. These are state programs we should fight for, we should win, we should try to institute. And they, I 
I list many potential constituencies that could benefit from progressive anti-family reforms, and I list many examples of such reforms, and I group them broadly into two categories. One category is to lead the state and to some extent employers to recognize and honor the chosen care relations that people actually live in. So in this category, we might put gay marriage, we might put domestic partner benefits, we might put like very readily available mechanisms. So, you know, there are a fair number of uh, single black mothers in the United States who raise children with the aid of their parents or their sister or their best friends who might live with them, right? And recognizing the complexity, I am a step parent uh, as a third parent, I have no legal rights in New York State at all, right? So uh, a, a expanding recognition of the complexity of how people form care relations. One example of this that I like a lot is if home, two homeless adults want to stay together in the shelter system, they have to be married or be domestic partners. And um, being domestic partners is much cheaper to get into and out of and doesn't have all the legally binding features of marriage. So many uh, homeless people in New York State, New York City, have uh, formed domestic partnerships with uh, other adults that they have no romantic relationship with at all so that they continue to stay together as they navigate the shelter system and emergency housing. And that, for me, is a really good example of kind of we need mechanisms to make it much more flexible. The other category, which in some ways is a bigger one, is is expanding non-commodified social democratic supports that outside of families that provide the kind of care that people may seek in a family. So these would be public housing, health care, right? Universal health care, uh, public education of all sorts, including higher education, like pre-K and daycare, uh, you know, that's sort of free and easily available to people. Um, uh, and, you know, like long-term care insurance as a universal social good so that you don't have to be afraid that no one will take care of you as you're aging. Um, and of course, all of these supports, as well as enabling someone to get out of a family, can also help stabilize families. They can lead people to choose to get into other kinds of families. They they expand the range of freedom available to proletarians in thinking about how to structure their lives. And so the, they're often framed as pro-family. And, you know, perhaps that is strategically helpful in some settings. But I am actually very skeptical of always framing our policy proposals, our reform demands in terms of family rhetoric because people's desires exceed the families available to them. And part of what the left should do is create space for people to be able to desire, to articulate desires, to let desires unfold and grow. And that that we need to fight for social democratic policies when they can be won, in part to enable people to live something more and something different from what we might call families. I want to ask you about the the red decade, the sixties and seventies. It's a it's a it's a really significant decade for your analysis that you're putting forward here for a number of reasons. Um, but 
I want to ask you if, if there's a way to kind of periodize the kind of current crisis of the family from that period onwards. And, and by that, I'm kind of referring to the, the kind of uh, the Marxist kind of uh, general law of capitalist accumulation and how that provides these huge kind of global shifts in production and organization of society that really directly transfer what is possible for the family. And, you know, linking back to that idea of the Simpsons family, that that's where that starts to shift. And again, qualifiers of different places, different times, different demographics, that shift will happen at different speeds and certain uh, demographics and groups that was something never available to them. But, but could you, yeah, could you talk a little bit about the significance of that period for you in, in your analysis of um, when the family starts to undergo a, a big, a real shift uh, in its role in society? So your question touches on a number of things that might um, it might be difficult to address succinctly in the remaining yeah. <laughs> time available. But so I provide a history of struggles to go against and beyond the family, uh, sort of horizons of gender and sexual liberation, often pursued by proletarians, by uh, subjugated colonized peoples, by enslaved peoples, and a history of thinking about family abolition, the struggle for family abolition. And I start in the mid-19th century and come up to the present. Um, but I I don't just write this as a succession of theorists. I actually periodize it and map it onto what I argue are the changing logic of the working class family and capitalist society. So that... Um, I, you know, what what originally led to this research project for me was editing a collection that's online of revolutionary feminisms, uh, engaging a kind of history of revolutionary critiques around gender and efforts to go beyond uh, male domination and uh, heteronormativity as built into capitalist society. And, you know, we start with Ingalls and go from there. Um, and one of the things that I found is people over and over again talk about the family as that which they're struggling against or trying to go beyond. But what they meant by family kept changing a lot. So it changed so much that it wasn't even obvious that they immediately, that they were talking about something completely different, right? When Marx and Engels talk about abolishing the family, they're talking about the bourgeois family. When Alexander Kolontai talks about uh, the overcoming the family through collectivizing all reproductive labor. She's talking about the working class family, right? And and this keeps changing. And so what I I map this onto a periodization of capitalist development. Um one that draws from Teori Communiste and a number of other theorists and thinking about sort of how capitalism changed over time and how the struggle against capitalism changed over time and uh, and that helping make sense of the place of the working class family in capitalist society and why struggles to go beyond the family took so many different forms over time. So I tried to provide a causal explanation for how these theories changed. The end of the 1960s is a is a difficult one. So I I adopt I expound this thesis uh, of the workers' movement. So the workers' movement as a particular historical juncture of proletarian struggle, one that consolidated in the 1880s and 1890s and unraveled in the 1970s. And the workers' movement was characterized um, by asserting 
being a worker as an identity that could be respectable and the basis of governance, right? So this includes social democrats, it includes council communists and anarchists, it includes Marxist-Leninists. And out of this sort of worker's identity, the idea that a free post-capitalist society is one where workers are in charge, which implies they keep their identities as workers, right? In fact, it implies the generalization of the condition of wage proletarians over the whole of society. So the liquidation of the bourgeoisie and the liquidation of the peasantry so that everyone becomes a wage worker and wage workers in their experience of interdependence in the workplace then are able to create a worker's society. One of the things that I argue is that a core element of the workers' movement was constructing a family form that was modeled after the bourgeoisie and that enabled them to distinguish themselves from non-respectable proletarians. So these would be queers, sex workers, uh, uh, black people, colonized people, indigenous people, chronically unwaged people, criminals, the very poor, right? So defining, creating a working class respectability that did not exist in the mid 19th century in any meaningful sense at all. And through this identity, asserting, building political parties and organizations and asserting the right to govern either as winning suffrage or as trying to take over the state as a whole. So constructing this working class, respectable family norm of around a male breadwinner as being a sort of core um, historical victory of the workers movement and one that um, really radically transformed the calculus of what family politics meant in the socialist imagination. Um, very different than Marx and Engels, for example. And so the end of the 1960s are an extremely contradictory period because on the one hand, all these various constituencies were asserting the right to join the workers' movement. So Black Americans, you know, the two great migrations in the United States had gotten out of rural areas in the South in large numbers and moved in the cities and um, Western and Northern states. And they wanted to get union jobs, right? They wanted they wanted uh, the a stable working class livelihood. You see a similar phenomenon with women, you know, an upsurge of women's strikes in women's sectors, nurses, teachers, huge unionization wave at the end of the 1960s or in the 1960s and 1970s in women-dominated labor sectors and women as workers demanding access into the workers' movement. You see, even the queer liberation movement really framed its commitments as sort of fighting alongside other revolutionaries. Um, you see anti-colonial struggles around the world that took a number of different forms, but Marxist-Leninists played a central role in many anti-colonial struggles. And so thinking about the colonized world as sort of joining a broader global Marxist movement. Um, and, uh, and, you know, here in New York, New York City had one of the few social democratic infrastructures in the United States. And there were huge struggles in the 1960s around Puerto Ricans, Black people, um, women being able to sort of fully participate in the system that the working class struggles had won in the 1930s and 40s. But um, 
On the other hand, there was a real effort to go beyond the workers' movement. And we see this in rejections of uh, uh, critiques of work, right? And I get into this a little bit in Wages for Housework and the National Welfare Rights Organization. We see this in uh, a rejection of state forms and of union bureaucratic union forms, uh, sort of rebellions popping off amongst young people that were not seeking to sort of consolidate themselves into the state forums. And we also see this in rejections of the family, of seeing this, particularly the suburban white family that is in many ways arguably the pinnacle of the workers' movement and its victories is the creation of a middle-class homeowners, right, outside of cities, able to sustain their lives through wage labor, uh, rejecting this as a, a horrific form of white supremacist, heteronormative, uh, you know, a shackling and oppression of women with uh, that the working class had in many ways the respectable segment of the working class had fought for and won the sort of creation of the suburbs. And of course, on a foundation of white supremacy and exclusion. And many, many young people had no interest in the suburbs at all, right? Uh, so this interest in sort of destroying and moving beyond the constraints of the workers' movement. And these two things were in contradiction in many ways. And I... Um, uh, and this contradiction, you know, other people have explored it in terms of the Situationist International or May 68, how it was both within and seeking to go beyond the workers' movement. It ultimately failed to go beyond the workers' movement, and it, uh, it won limited participation in the workers' movement, but it was not able to forge a kind of coherent revolutionary politics that really provided an alternative to the workers' society. And we, I think we see this in various ways, including the enlisting of some 60s politics into what became neoliberalism. But then something else happens quite dramatically, which is in the mid-1970s, global capitalism entered a very serious crisis. And I'm of a school of thought that that crisis never ended. That since the 1970s, the underlying mechanisms of rate of profit growth, of capital accumulation have been broken. And chiefly the core mechanism of their being broken are too many countries competing as export manufacturing hubs. And the world, it isn't profitable to consume at this point uh, enough manufactured goods to keep all these countries profitable. And so you have uh, uh, countries viciously competing over industrialization on the one hand, and then a few countries uh, making money by exporting resources like oil, uh, commodity booms. And then you have a whole lot of countries that just can't quite get their footing in the global economy at all. And in volume three, you alluded to this of capital, Marx lays out the general law of capitalist accumulation, which is the overproduction on the one hand, of capital accumulation and on the other hand of surplus populations. And I think we are seeing that unfold on a world scale right now, right? You can go to the Rust Belt in the United States or in inland and see tons and tons of closed factories. This is productive manufacturing capacity that it is no longer profitable to run, right? 
um, the world has way more capacity to make wealth than it is profitable to distribute. And then you get giant amounts of money looking for a place to invest and there being a lack of productive investments. So you get these completely ridiculous bubbles in real estate, in crypto, in stocks, in all sorts of things, constantly looking for bubbles that can be sustained because they they don't know where to invest, right? And then on the other hand, you know, the world peasantry has effectively been eliminated. You have billions of people looking for wage labor and a very, very small fraction of them finding it. And this in wealthier countries, this takes the form of large scale unemployment of, you know, young people sticking in university forever because there are no jobs when they get out. It takes the form of, um, you know, gig economy labor in the global sector. South, it takes the form of large numbers of people finding hustles on the street, selling random shit in order to get by because they are we are surplus. Right. We are excluded from the the circuits of wage labor. And so this is the overall context that I provide for thinking about some of the changes in the family form that I spoke about earlier, uh, where uh, this overall crisis has led to capitalists really driving down wages for working class people, sort of sh uh, dismantling social democratic programs, closing the doors to new people and new countries to be able to industrialize or be successful. And uh, and for working class people of all sorts, intensifying precarity, uh, the complete unavailability of stable lives and uh, a real uh, prolonged economic crisis, a care crisis and people really needing each other and and it not it being very, very difficult to form anything stable. Um, so your question touched on a lot of things, but I hope yes, I managed to summarize it there. No, you did really well. Um, and again, I'm kind of left with sort of a bunch of different stuff I'd like to ask you. And I'm just trying to think about what will make the kind of most coherent through line for people listening. Um, so I guess what you're pointing to there is that there's then a question for those of us that uh, don't want capitalism and want a collection of things. But let's just simplify and say kind of communism or socialism or anarchism is um, we don't, if we want to go beyond the family, we have to find a new kind of social reproduction. So how do we kind of reproduce ourselves as subjects, uh, which is exactly, I suppose, where the question of sort of family abolitionism becomes just frankly unavoidable. Maybe the kind of final thing I ask you about is you write in a few different places in this book about what you call kind of insurgent social reproduction. So as you highlighted earlier, points at which the working class enter sort of phases of rebellion, revolution, the, the structure of the family begins to kind of break apart or, or not be useful anymore, or in some instances, reassert itself to in, for kind of counter-revolutionary means. So I guess the kind of simple sort of maybe kind of final thing I'll, uh, I'll ask you is kind of, what is it that you see sort of happening to the family in those moments? Um, and and yeah, so what is it you see happening to the family? And then maybe for the last time, I'll ask a kind of final little kind of follow-up question. Sure. So um, 
Many people ask me uh, when I speak on this book, what is to be done in one way or another? And I don't necessarily have great, great advice for people. And that partially comes out of my skepticism that theory is a source of guidance for how people should rebel, uh, that it's not totally clear that's the case. Um, certainly, there's a lot of struggles to go against and beyond the family in the world today. And I think those are admirable and should be preserved and defended and reproduced. Um, but I do try to theorize what could it look like to overcome the private family. And I have a chapter on focused on what I call communist social reproduction. So trying to think about, flesh out a little bit, what would a free society look like? What would a society from each according to their ability to each according to their needs? Or what would a society look like where who you chose to have sex with had no effect on your material well-being? Right. Which that seems like a really foundational should be a universal core principle for anyone who cares about justice at all. That who you happen to be related to, who you happen to have sex with and who you happen to choose to live with should not have any effect on whether you live in poverty or not. Right. And but actually implementing that would require a massive transformation in how private households function. Um, and, you know, like they're so laying out some principles of communist social reproduction and then thinking, so how could we get there? And I'm very skeptical about state based solutions for getting there, although I support state reforms and support social democratic programs. I'm very skeptical that capitalist states or even post revolutionary states will ever actually provide an exit from commodification from racial capitalism. Um, and I'm also really skeptical of any market-based solutions, right? Of uh, the idea that everybody getting wage labor jobs will then enable them to, to um, live free, which in the at moments, some family abolitionist talkers seem to be thinking that way. Um, and so I'm looking for solutions that do neither. And where I find them is in sustained protest. Right. So that the, I uh, identify I, the book opens with the Oaxaca commune in 2006, the, the protests following the massacre, um, the police crackdown on a teacher strike and women forming these barricades uh, around Oaxaca. I in the chapter on social insurgent social reproduction, I talk about my own personal biography going between protest camps in the 90s and 2000s. Pages of uh... yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, and there's a, plenty more pages that I could have laid out that I didn't get into. Um, and, um, and I talk about like the no dapple protest, the standing rock, the huge, you know, tens over 10,000 people were uh, protesting this construction of an oil pipeline um, uh, through um, in the standing rock in, in indigenous reservation. Um, and uh, and I'm, you know, allude to anti-colonial struggles. I talk about Fanon a little bit. I um, uh, don't get into, but I could have sort of how social reproduction functioned during mass strikes in the 1930s and sit down strikes. And in all these cases, um, markets are not available. State programs are not available. And working class people are in rebellion. And the boundaries of how private families function um, are less and less helpful. 
people might bring their children into protest, but in protesting, the protest itself becomes a site of reproduction, right? So the protest kitchen, around the people's kitchen, right, is the name of the chapter. And sort of thinking about these collective forms of social reproduction that emerge during periods of mass working class insurgency. I think looting and the redistributing of looting goods is one example of that. Um, and that people figuring out how to take care of each other while they're in struggle together when uh, the private household it would be a constraint, a limit on how they're able to struggle together. And there's some really striking examples of that. And in this form, I see prefigured more than I do in communes and rural deliberate living communities, more than I do in chosen family and all its rich, beautiful forms. In these sort of moments of insurgent social reproduction, I see a prefiguration of something beyond the family. And I get into that in the following chapter of communes to come and sort of imagining what if the commune form emerged surrounding these collective acts of reproduction. And, you know, often a protest kitchen, a particular kitchen might feed a couple hundred people, right? So that's a unit where people can procure food together, argue together, figure out their place in a broader revolutionary struggle together, and figure out their sleeping accommodations together. And, you know, that's um, the houses surrounding an elementary school in a residential neighborhood. That's a large apartment building, right? That's a, that's a unit of residential life that actually food could function on that unit. Um, people could coordinate childcare on that unit. And then within it, people might choose to family together, as Amen Abdul Hadi put it in the novel that we wrote together, depicting such a future. People might, you know, partner, get involved in romantic relationships, uh, put together a collection of adults to choose to raise children, might uh, choose to live together, right, within particular accommodations within this broader unit. But if it didn't quite work out, if people weren't really getting along, people could rearrange their living arrangements and it wouldn't have any effect on their economic well-being. That, that because the unit of social reproduction is the commune, that, that your material life would not change appreciably based on your romantic relationships. I have no idea if this could happen. I have no idea how we would manage very important questions about like keeping communes from stratifying or becoming cults or all sorts of other problems. I mean, I have speculative ideas, but they're on the level of science fiction, right? But, but this is one example of a social form that I see in co-weight and existing mass struggles that meets the minimum criteria of what I think of as communist social reproduction. And what I hope my book will do is, so I hope my book will do a number of things, but two very important runs to me. One is to lead leftists to be an activists, radicals, revolutionaries, to be more attuned to the actual movement against the family to overcome the family that actually unfolds in mass struggles. Mm -hmm. So when there's mass insurgency happening, huge strikes, huge riots, huge protest camps, recognizing that part of what people are doing is living beyond the private family 
And in that, they're seeking greater freedom and greater well-being and greater safety. And all new problems have to come up, right? They have to argue about what to do about sexual assault, argue about what to do about raising children, what to do about food and disposing of waste and all these other things. And that that is family, a form of a moment of family abolition. And that it, the terrible thing to do is to step in and say, well, what we should be talking about is how to support families, right? To sort of reassert the private household as the unit of what's participating, to reassert a kind of normative ideal within this, and instead actually be able to see what's happening, value what's happening, and support what's happening. The other is I want to just encourage a lot more people to try to imagine, I get, it's very unusual for communist theory, I get into a chapters at the end of talking about the future. Mm. And I think that, that talking about the future doesn't have to be the kind of blueprint social plan yeah. receipts for the cookshops of the future that, that marks this critique of utopian socialists, that it also is a way of articulating what we desire in the present. And allowing ourselves to desire and imagine what we desire, talk about what we desire, argue about what we desire, and that we we have desires to go beyond the family. We don't, we want to be cared for, but we don't want this care to be a conditional thing based on who we're willing to have sex with, right? Like we we desire more and we desire differently, and allowing that to unfold in a variety of future visions that we can argue about and think about and talk about about together. And of course, as struggles unfold, they will decide their own futures. Like it's not up to us, but that insofar as we're participants in these struggles, allowing ourselves to think about the future can be a very powerful move. Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Emmy for such a wonderful conversation. One final reminder that if you would like to support Red Medicine, please do consider signing up for a £1 a month donation, which will help keep the podcast consistent and long-lasting. If you don't want to do that but would still like to support the podcast, the most important thing you can do is share this or other episodes with people you think might enjoy it. You can also go on Apple or Spotify and give the show five stars, which will help the algorithm recommend it to more people. Thanks again.